Father, we have great work ahead of us tonight. <clears throat> As we um, study this, this parable that that has given us a terminology, Father, uh, worldwide about being a Good Samaritan. And this story that Jesus tells is a story that even if we don't recognize it as coming from Christ, we recognize it as, as the kind of story that has changed people's lives in our world. And so this is, a, this is heavy work and heavy lifting for us tonight, Father, to, to think about this, this parable that is this story, Father, that is so familiar to us who follow your son Jesus with, with all of our strength and, and with all of our uh, energies to, to, to hear these words uh, fresh again and hearing them fresh again for them to fall upon our hearts in such a way that we are changed again, Father, into the kind of people that Jesus is, is, is speaking about here. And so to this end, we ask you to give us eyes that see and ears that hear. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, the storyteller. Amen. Uh, the story is about a Samaritan. And uh, we've, we've, we've done some talking about the Samaritans recently, and we won't go into a lot of detail, but just kind of refresh uh, your memory. Uh, the, the Samaritans were, were a... a sort of a, a, a biracial group of people that were living in the land during the time of Jesus. And the way they became Samaritan, and that in a really derogatory sense, was that going all the way back to the divided kingdom in 721, uh, the, the capital of the northern ten tribes was this city called Samaria. And in 721, because the, 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 those ten tribes had been rambunctious and rebellious towards the Assyrians, the Assyrians decided it was time to come and, and to, to, just, to just level those ten tribes. And basically what they did was not only level the town of Samaria, but they, they dragged into captivity just about all of the, the, uh, the, the people, the citizens of those ten tribes that were worth anything. And not only did they carry him into captivity, but they carried him into oblivion. Those ten tribes basically, for all intents and purposes, disappeared at that point. And there was only a remnant of the people, and, and not the, the most popular people, not the richest people, the most educated people, the, the people with the means. It was really the people that were not worth carrying off into captivity. And the Assyrians would then populate these conquered areas with other conquered people and with the, uh, the, the Jewish people left from those ten tribes with all of the, conquer, the, uh, the conquered people who were now the occupying force, there was some intermarrying. And to kind of, you know, cut to the chase, when the two uh, tribes that were left were carried off into captivity, and then later on at the end of 70 years came back into the land, there was, uh, there was a lot of disdain that was shown towards these Samaritans because they were seen as people who had compromised their faith. They were seen as people that had not been true to the covenant that they were supposed to maintain in their marriages and so on and so forth with, with God, but they had compromised all of that. And so the Samaritans kind of became a, a byword for, for traitor, became somebody that you didn't trust, somebody that, that you were uncomfortable with, somebody that you would not go out of your way to have a conversation with or even ask help from. And in this story, the Samaritan is a literal person, but also a metaphor. Because 
even though National Geographic tells us that there are still Samaritans in the land, there's only about 500 Samaritans uh, that live in the land of Israel right now, every one of us knows a Samaritan. A Samaritan is not necessarily one by ethnicity. A Samaritan is just somebody that you feel uncomfortable with, somebody that you may not be very comfortable getting close to, may not be somebody that that you feel uh, safe with, somebody you certainly don't want to be vulnerable to. It may be somebody that you go out of your way to avoid. For example, if you are liberal, liberal Democrat, your Samaritan is a Republican. (laughs) If you are a right, right right-winged Republican, your Samaritan is a socialist or somebody with the last name Clinton or the last name Sanders or, you know, you get it. If you go to Texas A&M, your Samaritan is a Longhorn, right? If, if, if you're a Spurs fan, your Samaritan is anybody that plays for Mark Cuban, right? You know, you, you get that. Um, there was an elder that uh, I was very, very close to. Uh, hired me for a, for a preaching job a lot of years ago. And um, this, this fellow was, was, was one of the best fellows I, I, I knew in, just ter- in terms of integrity, uh, it just his goodness. He, he was, if there was anybody that I knew was a really righteous individual, it was this guy. But one day um, he was talking about the need to buy a new car. And uh, a little background before I tell you what his answer was to, uh, to a response I made. This was a guy that had graduated from the Naval Academy in Annapolis in uh, December of 1940. And in uh, December of 1941, he is in Pearl Harbor. And on December 7th of 1941, he is uh, in the bottom of the the battleship, the USS Maryland. And uh, there was, you know, as you know, he he was there during the attack on Pearl Harbor. And uh, he had uh, continued to, to, uh, to, to train as a naval aviator and was a fighter pilot during World War II and was in the Pacific for the entire war. And so all of these decades later, decades later, decades later, we're talking, you know, 50 years later, uh, where he's talking about the need to buy a new car. And I said, um, well, what do you think about a Honda? And he said... I'll never buy a Japanese car. For this, this fella, a Samaritan, was Japanese. And here is this, uh, this expert in the law that has decided that he wants to, to test Jesus. And he, he comes up to Jesus, and in verse 25, he stands up and he says, Teacher, What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Basically, what he's asking is, what do I have to do to get to heaven? Now, there's a couple of reality checks here in the text. The first one is, is that Luke is letting us know that this guy is testing Jesus, which means that, you know, there's some 
ulterior motive that he has in asking Jesus the question that he's asking him. Now, over the years as a minister, there have been all kinds of folk that have wanted to uh, basically do the same thing that this expert in the law is wanting to do, and they'll come up and they say, uh, preacher, tell me what you think about this. And it's not that they really want to know what I think. What they want to know is whether or not I'm on the right team. And so this is what I think this fellow is. He, he's not really asking Jesus what, you know, what is the answer to this question. He's wanting to know if Jesus is on the same team. He's testing Jesus because he already knows in his heart what, he's, what his answer is. Now, the, the funny thing is, is that, um, and this brings us to the second reality check, is that he gets the, the question wrong. He gets the question wrong. He asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he makes a very common mistake, especially among some of the different fragmented sects of Judaism during this period of time. But he's basically making the Old Testament, he's making Torah, he's making the Old Testament Scripture about him, not about God, but about him. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What is it that I have to do on a day-to-day -day basis to be able to get into God's heaven? And he has missed the entire point in terms of the practical way of living. He has made the Bible, he has made the Old Testament about him. Basically, he does not need God. All he needs to do is to do what God wants. And so Jesus asks him a very important question. He goes, what's written in the law? That is, what's written in Torah? And here's the ironic thing, because this, this expert in the law gets the answer right. He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, and he quotes Leviticus chapter 19, and he says, you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself. He gets it right. It's about loving God for the sake of God. It's about recognizing that there is one God, and God is one, and there is no one like him, and that this God is the one that has given you life, and has created you, and has given formation to your life, and has protected you, and you have this history with him, and you love this God. And a reflection of that is in loving your neighbor as yourself. Now, this brings up an issue. I want you in your Bible, put a little star right there by that verse. We're going to return to that later. But this expert, you know, having said what he said, Jesus says, you're absolutely correct. Do this and live. Go do that. Go do that. Well, the expert in law is not all that, all that excited about that kind of a response from Jesus, and he wants to justify himself. You see, it's really about him. And he says, who is my neighbor? which is another way of saying, okay, who is it that I ha I, I, I'm supposed to love and who do I not have to love? And Jesus is, 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 is wise and sees into the heart of this man and the question, who is my neighbor? And what he sees is a guy that's wondering, okay, do I, do I love the ones who believe and practice Torah the way that I do? And what about the, those zealots? Do I have to love them as well? Or the Herodians, do I have to love them? Or the Romans, or, and you can fill in the blank. It's to justify himself, so who is my neighbor? Well, it's here that Christ tells the story of the good Samaritan. And he starts by saying, here's this man who's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. Again, this part of the story is very familiar to us. You know, Jericho is down here. Jerusalem is up here. It's downhill, 3,600 feet, over 17 miles. 
It was uh, a road that was notoriously dangerous because it had been paved by the Romans, but there were caves everywhere, and, and brigands and lestai, uh, the Greek word for the, for the, uh, the bandits, could, could hide in those caves and jump out at any moment and, and beat you after death, steal your money, and be gone, and nobody would be able to trace them. And so here's this guy, and Jesus is in particular vague about the details of this guy. He's a man. There are no details about, about anything about him, what he believes, whether he's rich or poor. You know, nothing about really anything except that he's, he's a male. And I think the reason for this is that uh, this victim could be anybody. This victim could have been anybody. It, if we were to think about it today, it, it could be that person that needs encouragement. Or it could be, you know, that person in our neighborhood who just found out that they, they have cancer. Or it might be that co-worker, that, that person in the, in the workplace, that colleague whose marriage is on the rock. The point that Jesus is trying to make in terms of the vagueness of this victim is that this guy represents any of the people that we might come across who need help. And so here he is. He's on the side of the road. They've stripped him of his clothes. They have beat him. They went away, leaving him half dead. And then all of a sudden, here comes a priest priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. And so then you have this, this Levite, and he is afraid, and the Levite, not quite at the level of a priest, but he's somebody that helps a priest. He's following along, maybe even the helper to that particular priest that goes by. He's following him because the priest is going to be on a horse, a Levite is not. But he's afraid. He's too busy. He doesn't stop either. Now, the, the, the priest and the Levite the priest and the Levite are the people that you would expect to stop. They're the people that you would expect to stop to help this guy. And it's easy for us to say that these are the guys that should have stopped because they represent the kingdom of God in, in Israel. And yet, how many times have we found ourselves too busy to stop ourselves to help someone? I have a friend by the name of Lou Smith who probably 30 years ago told me this and it was so profound because it hits so hard at the heart of who Mark Absher is that I wrote it down in my Bible and memorized it and think about it all the time. He said, he said here's, and he recognized, as an older man, he recognized that full of energy, moving, moving forward, it's going to be hard for me to stop. He goes, Mark, here's the deal. If the devil can't make you bad, the devil's going to make you busy. Too busy to stop sometimes. And then here comes the Samaritan, and the Samaritan is, is moved with pity when he saw him. And when he came to where he, the, the man was, he, he went to him and bandaged his wounds, and pouring on oil and wine, he put the man on his donkey and took him to an inn to take care of him. And then the next day he took out two silver coins and, and gave, it, gave them to the innkeeper, and he said, look after him, he said, and when I return I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. And then Jesus says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the expert in the law replied, well, it's the one that had mercy on him. And Jesus again says, go and do likewise. The thing that's really interesting about these three individuals, the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan, are the questions that they entertain in their heart when they see this opportunity to help someone. The priest and the Levite go by, and they seem to be asking the question, what will happen to me 
if I stop. But the Samaritan is asking a different kind of a question, and it's a question of mercy and a question of compassion. And when he sees the man, his question is not, what will happen to me if I stop? The question is, what will happen to him if I don't? You know, sometimes this stopping business is just, you know, it's really not a big deal. I remember one time I was, uh, you may remember uh, some years ago, uh, this is when Jordan was back in college, I was driving a Volvo, and uh, Volvo, Volvo's not a Ford. And uh, I'm driving this Volvo uh, out through West Texas and, and have a flat tire. And here's the reason that a Volvo's not a Ford. I get out of the car, blown tire. I mean, that tire's just blown to bits. I open up the trunk, and I pull out the most sissified jack and the most sissified lug wrench you have ever seen in your life. And I get that, 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 uh, that tire jacked up just enough where I need to put that lug wrench on it. And the fella at Discount Tire, who had changed those tires and had put that tire that had blown on it, had used an air, uh, a compression wrench and had it ratcheted up so tight that when he put those lug nuts on, there was no way with a sissified lug wrench I was going to be able to pull it off with manual labor. It just wasn't going to happen. And so I'm, I'm standing there and I'm going, what in the world am I going to do? There, I can't see a house for miles and miles and miles and miles. I go back to the, to, the, to the trunk, and I'm going, okay, is there anything else in this car I can use? And that's when I see the donut, the most sissified spare tire I've ever seen in my life. And so I pull this thing out, and I mean, I, it's a spare tire, and I mean, it's about this big, and I'm just holding it there on the side of the road trying to figure out how I'm going to get this tire off and this one on when here comes this beat-up truck that pulls right down in front of me, and I'm going, okay, this is going to be interesting. I'm in the middle of nowhere. I don't know anybody. I'm not getting any cell reception. I can't even call Allstate to have them send a wrecker and come get me. This is going to be interesting. And these two old guys get out with cowboy hats and long hair, and they come walking up, and I'm going, okay, this is going to be interesting. Let's see what happens. And they go, can't you get that tire off? (laughs) And I said, well... Uh, I wish I could, but this is what I'm working with. And then they started laughing, and they went back to their truck, and they pulled out, you know, this universal lug wrench, and they went, man, they just, and they ended up changing that tire for me. I must have looked pitiful holding that donut, you know, there. And, and they, they go, uh, you know, I don't know if that's going to get you very far. We ought to follow you to the next town. I said, how far is the next town? They go 30 miles. Those guys went out of their way 30 miles to make sure that on that donut I made it to the tire store in case I might have had another blowout on that sissified donut. I, you know, at the end, you know, they stopped. I got out. I went over, shook their hands, and I said, you know what? I can't tell you how much I really appreciate you guys went out of your way. Is there something I can do for you? He said, nope said, we just love Jesus, drove off. That's a really easy one, right? Sometimes it's a little bit more dire. In, in uh, October of 2013, in Buffalo, New York, there's this 37-year-old guy by the name of Darnell Barton, who's a school bus driver, a high school bus driver. And he's out in traffic, and he's crossing a bridge that's over, uh, you know, it's a high bridge over a river. And as they're going, and because there's a lot of traffic, 
he's able to spot a couple of car lengths down the road. There's this woman who looks a little frantic, and she's on the wrong side of the guardrail. Well, he's able to get right up kind of next to her, and he stops his bus and opens up the door. And this has got a, he's got a bus full of high school kids, and they're all watching this. And he asks the woman, are you okay? Well, she doesn't answer him. He asks again. He gets out of the bus and realizes that this, this woman is wanting to make a really, really bad decision. And he just starts talking to her. Just starts talking to her. And finally gets up close enough to her that he's able to grab her and to bring her over the guardrail. And then he sits there and he talks with her and tries to calm her and just compassionate. And he just talks to her until the first responders, the ambulance gets there to take over. And when they were interviewing him, they, they were asking him, he said, well, you know, what in, what in the world were you thinking? He said, well, my mom always taught me that you need, you need to watch out for other people, and that's what Christians do. And the really ironic thing about this is that not only were there a lot of traffic going across that bridge, but the security cameras show that there was a pedestrian, a guy on foot, that walked past this woman, never stopped. There was a bicyclist that went by this woman and never stopped. The question is, what would have happened to her if Darnell had not stopped? You think about the, the three guys that passed this, this, this man who's wounded on the way from Jerusalem to Jericho. Two out of the three keep going. One out of the three stops. I, you know, I don't know if that's representative of the kind of culture that we live in today that, you know, if you, if you have three people that walk by, you know, uh, somebody that's stranded or somebody that's hurt or somebody that's wounded, that, you know, that two-thirds, 66% of them are going to walk by, but, you know, a third will stop. One out of every three will stop. I, it may be even less than that in our own culture. But I, I would like to think that in our city where God has planted this church that the Mac Arthur Park Church of Christ is a place that's made up of disciples who stop for those who have been left on the side of the road half dead. And we're the ones that ask the question, what happens to them if we don't stop? And what does it mean to love God in a second like it to love a neighbor as self? I mentioned uh, earlier that there was an issue in this text that comes up from time to time. And the issue is, well, um, you know, Jesus died on the cross, supposedly, allegedly, to save me from my my sins, to bring forgiveness, to bring redemption, to bring grace, to, to free me up from my enslavement to sin. But right here, he seems to be saying that if you want to get into God's heaven and God's heaven into you, then what you need to do is, is to love God and, and to love people. And I don't know if you've had these conversations with folk, but I've had them through the years. Somebody says, well, I don't really need Jesus because I, I love God. And Jesus himself even taught that. And it sounds pretty good until you begin to think about the reality of that statement of loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I have two precious kids I know without a shadow of a doubt that I would die for them. I I would die for them. 
If, if, if uh, trade my life for theirs without a shadow of a doubt. I have a wife. You guys know Ellen. She's easy, easy, easy to love. But do I love these tangible, beautiful, physical human beings that I'm connected to in a special, intimate way? Do I love them perfectly all the time? Even though I want to, do I love them perfectly? The answer is no. I think about myself. There are times when I can't even, I can't even love myself. So when we think about it in terms of the, the, the pragmatic parts of loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength during the day and doing that perfectly and loving a neighbor as you love yourself, it sounds great, but when we get right down to it, do we really do it? And that's where I think this story kind of hits in a deeper place for us. Because, you know, it's, it, it's not that we don't have the knowledge. It's not that, you know, we don't have insight into the Scripture that helps us to understand that, yes, loving God is important, but we don't do that perfectly. And the reason why is because we're sinful people. We live in a fallen creation, and we live in, in, a, in, we live in the fallenness of our own flesh. I mean, there are times when there, there are things that we know are absolutely wrong, and yet those are the things that we do. And there are things that we know are absolutely right, and we want to do them with all of our heart, but we don't do it because we'd rather do something else. We are enslaved to sin as human beings. We can talk about loving God all we want, but we do not love God perfectly. And the reason is because we've been worked over and beaten up pretty badly by the idolatrous processes that are present in a world like this. In other words, we've been left on the side of the road half dead and beaten up. And there was somebody that would not just pass by, but would stop. And that's, that's why this story takes on a whole new meaning for us when we begin to realize is that, hey, we're that person on the side of the road, and if it's not for the Christ who stops and comes near and, and, and not only heals, but forgives, and not just forgives, but sets us up in such a way that he takes care. That, Paul talks in Romans 5 of that grace in which we now stand. That grace is what we live in for the rest of our lives until we come into that place where we live in God's eternal presence without veils. See, because there was one that asked the question when they saw us on the side of the road, what happens to them if I don't stop? And his stop put him on a cross. And not, he didn't pay a couple of silver coins. and didn't, It wasn't the cost of just you know a little bit of wine, a little bit of oil, and some wear and tear on his shoes as he lifted us up on his own animal and took us to a place where we could get some help. But it cost him his life. We put ourselves in danger, but he put himself in death for us so that we could live. And that's why, that's, that's what makes it possible for us to ask the question with these, these, these nameless 
sometimes identityless people that we run into on a daily basis that need help, that need the encouragement, that need the calming words, that need the gospel, that need the love, that need the service, that need the charity, that need the compassion, that need the mercy. That's why it, it, we are enabled to ask the question, what happens to them if we don't stop? Because we know what happened to us because someone did. Jeff's going to lead us in a song. And if there are ways that we might pray for you tonight or minister to you, then we're going to have a couple of shepherds down here at the front. And we want you to come down and talk to them. And, and we can pray with you tonight. We can do whatever it takes to help you find your, your way into that direction that brings you into the presence of God for all of eternity. That describes you. Come down and talk to these shepherds as we stand and praise God. Only in the uh, Savior, my